I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Key Eats, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Margaret Johnson is a 21-year veteran of Goodby, Silverstein, and Partners, and leads the agency's creative department as chief creative officer. Advertising Age named Margaret Executive of the Year in 2018, and over the years, she has been named one of the industry's top chief creative officers by Forbes, Business Insider, Adweek, and The Drum. She has succeeded in an environment that is dominated by men. She is the modern and woman version of Don Draper. Or maybe he was a primordial version of Margaret Johnson. Her accomplishments are too many to detail, but just watch the latest Super Bowl ads for a taste of her work. She had four of them. I've known Margaret for over 20 years and think she's a fascinating person with a fascinating background and a fascinating life involving jetting around the world to places like Cannes, France, where she recently served as president of the 2019 Cannes film Lyon Jury. But she also is a mom of two wonderful kids and lives a very normal life when not at work. I was really interested to sit down with Margaret to learn how she went from living in a small town in North Carolina to being the creative director at one of the most important advertising agencies in the world. I wanted to see how Margaret approached making decisions in her career and how she balanced her career and home life. My grandfather was an early executive in the advertising world, so I also wanted to learn how Margaret thinks about advertising and especially how she thinks about storytelling. Speaking of advertising... A quick word from our sponsor, Key Eats. We recently launched our own low-carbohydrate bars, and we're pretty excited about how they turned out. First off, they taste great. Even my kids, who hate all low-carb food, love them. I've quite literally had to hide them in my house so they won't disappear. But we didn't just set out to make a great tasting bar. We wanted to make something with the best, fewest, and healthiest ingredients. There are 3 grams of net carbs, 12 grams of protein, 18 grams of fat per serving with only one gram of saturated fat. The vanilla almond, my favorite, is made of only almonds, pea protein, chicory root fiber, and flaxseed. They're sweetened with my favorite natural non-sugar sweetener, allulose. In addition to vanilla almond, we have cookie dough and fudge brownie. I've had a lot of fun passing them out recently, and the most frequent comment I've gotten is people think we fake the nutrition. Quote, there's no way this can taste so good with just those ingredients. Well, they do. We're so confident you'll like them that we're willing to send you a sample pack of three bars for free, including shipping. Just go to keyeats.com slash BKM. That's K-E-Y-E-A-T-S dot com slash B-K-M for best known method for details. In the meantime, enjoy this conversation with my friend Margaret Johnson. My name's Margaret Johnson, and I grew up in Statesville, North Carolina, which is the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. If you know anything about North Carolina, it's where 77 and I-40 intersect. I know a little bit about North Carolina, but I don't think I knew that. (laughs) Um, What else can I tell you? It's like 45 minutes north of Charlotte. So was it like a go to Charlotte for like a big dinner kind of celebration type thing, or was it? It was a it was definitely a, okay, it's prom. We're going to go to the big city and go to dinner kind of place. And you had like a relatively normal kind of quasi-suburban childhood. You have one brother, right? I have one brother. And you guys are pretty close in age? Uh, yeah, two years apart. And you just ran around and did things that people do in North Carolina, right? You were a normal kid. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the only really different thing was that I had a working mom. So Tell me about that. Uh, she was the chief of x-ray at our local hospital and, uh, it was a pretty, pretty big job. She grew up in a small town too. I asked her later, like, wow, how'd you end up doing, uh, doing what you, you did for your career? And she's like, well, I only ended up doing that because I grew up in a small town and I didn't realize I could have, I could have become a radiologist. (laughs) So anyway, she ran the department for the radiologist. But your, most of your friends Moms were stay-at-home moms. They they weren't working. The majority were stay-at-home moms. So I was kind of the exception. 
on that front. And so when you were a kid, when you were, uh, you know, going through middle school and high school and stuff, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you were going to be an adult or did you not really think about it? I didn't really think about it. I mean, I think I always was drawn to, you know, the arts, to theater, all of that kind of stuff I was always really into. So I gravitated towards that stuff, I think, as I got older or out of college. But all right, so you went to college. I know you went to college at UNC, right? In That's right. Hill. Yeah. And what did you study when you were there? I was in the journalism school. And uh, the journalism school at the time had an advertising sequence. So I was in the advertising sequence of the journalism school at Carolina. Well, that sounds kind of intentional. It does, but it, it, it really wasn't. I think I was like, oh, okay, I like writing. I like the arts. Advertising seems kind of interesting. So I, you know, tiptoed down that path. But the reality was that at Carolina, it was really more about news writing. And it wasn't until... I think it was the summer between my junior and senior year. I had a friend who was going to New York, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way to to be in New York for the summer with her. And um, I found a uh, a class at Parsons School of Design that it was a graphic design class, and convinced my parents that this was something I should do for the summer. So I went to Parsons and took this class, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be on this side, not the." news writing side. I'm supposed to be more on the art side. And was that it? Um, No, actually. A funny thing happened um, after I finished the course because I loved it. I was like, okay, how do I get into advertising for real? And I remember the day I was leaving New York, I walked over to a New York City phone booth and I ripped the yellow pages out of the phone book, the advertising section of the of the yellow pages. And took it back with me to Chapel Hill. And later, when I was graduating, I pulled it back out. And because I'd heard that you have to have a portfolio to get into to advertising. So I was like, how the heck am I going to put one of these things together? Should I go back to Parsons or is there another school? And someone had told me about a, a little school in Atlanta called the Portfolio Center. And uh, this is crazy that I did this, but this is this is a true story. I cold called probably 50 advertising agencies including ones like like BBDO New York. The big ones. Yes. And they I remember the person on the other end of the phone's like, you know, BBDO New York. And uh, I would say, hey, can I just speak to someone in the creative department? Not realizing that there were probably 600 creatives at BBDO New York. And they're like, anyone? And I'm like, yeah, just anyone. And whoever it was that uh, answered the, the phone in the creative department, I would say, Hey, I'm a I'm a kid graduating from the University of North Carolina, and if you were going to hire someone right out of school, where did they put these portfolios together? How do I do that? Is it at Parsons School of Design or is it at the Portfolio Center in Atlanta? And like 99% of them said the Portfolio Center in Atlanta, and so I I went there. I applied and and, and got in and ended up going there and putting a portfolio together. When looking for the right information, the best-known method in our respective fields of work or study, the easy thing to do is to ask our peers what they are doing. Our peer group is generally self-selected for people we have quick access to and comfort speaking with. Margaret took it one step further. She reached out to her potential employers, and she got good information on what the right selection of people were doing, her peers, that actually got hired. She was already showing the mastery of customer research and targeted marketing that would lead her to eventually become one of the top advertising executives in the world. This is pretty interesting because I actually, I probably told you that my grandfather was an early executive in the advertising business. I think he did, yeah. um, We won't talk about that too much, but I have this very superficial knowledge of advertising. But I didn't realize that in order to get into the business, you had to have on the creative side, I guess you're telling me you have to have a portfolio. like Yeah. Or at least at that time, you had to have, we would carry around these giant black leather cases with laminated boards inside of all your work. And is it like pretend? Or yes. Was it, yeah. Yeah. It's so all you, spec work. Okay. So you'd basically be like, I'm going to put together a storyboard for Coke or whoever, whatever it is. And then you'd walk in and you'd do it. And then that would be a part of your portfolio? Is that how it works? Exactly, right. exactly. So like at the Portfolio Center, it would it kind of mirrored a real agency. So, 
you know, I was the art director and then I would be paired with a copywriter and we would concept ideas for, you know, any brand and and put little ads together and laminate them and put them in this giant portfolio case and we would carry them around to interviews. That is cool. So how did it turn out that I didn't even know there was such a thing as the portfolio school? Is there, are there other there are other ones like it or is the only one in Atlanta? Oh no no no. There there's like RISD. There's um, the Ad Center. There's the Art Center. There's like there's Got lots it. of different ones. Got it. Okay. And so but this one ended up down there. Was it because of Coke or was it just random that it ended up in Atlanta? No, it was just, yeah, kind of one that a guy who had been into advertising, you know, for his whole career had, had stopped, you know, working as a creative and opened up an ad school. Wow. And yeah. how long was the program? Uh, it was two years. And so at the end of two years, you take your black, big, huge, huge portfolio and you march up to New York City and ask for a job? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy that this is kind of kind of funny that I uh, really admired at the time. And, and uh, we used to look through, pour through these advertising annuals. They were actual books that had ads in them that were, you know, deemed award worthy. And there was this one art director named Jeremy Poster, and I, I just loved his style. And oddly, he worked here at Goodby Silverstein. So I would, I loosely <laughs> patterned my book after his because I liked it so much. And um, when I was graduating, I sent my portfolio to him, and he had he had left Goodby and gone to there was a little agency in Providence, Rhode Island called Leonard Monahan, Lou Bars, and Kelly. So I sent him my portfolio. He loved it because it looked exactly like his, and ended up giving me my my first job. So your first job was in Providence. Yes. Wow. For this guy who promptly left as soon as I got there. <laughs> so then I'm like, what am I doing in Providence, Rhode Island? <laughs> uh, and then I moved to uh, Dallas, Texas and worked at the Richards Group after that. And this is kind of crazy, too. The guy that I worked for, Grant Richards, um, ended up leaving about a year and a half later, and he came to, to Goodby. And, um, and Jeremy had, had come back here. And so then the two of them said, hey, why don't you move to, to California? Why don't you move to San Francisco and work here? So when did you end up moving out here? Gosh, it was probably 96, 1996. Okay. Long and, time ago. <laughs> and Goodby was founded when? Probably about 35 years ago. So 1980. Okay. 83. And, and like the two original founding partners were Goodby and Silverstein, right? That's right. And they're still here. And they're still partners. They're still roaming the house. Well, they don't really work together on things, but uh, I think they've had enough of that. <laughs> and this place, we, I don't. We don't need to spend too much time talking about it. But it's grown a lot since. Well, I, mean, I bet it's grown a lot since. Obviously, since they started it, but then since you came here twenty something years ago, I bet it's grown a lot too. Yeah, I mean, we're a lot bigger. I think the kind of work that we do is really different. So the kind of, the place kind of reinvents itself every you know three to five years. It kind of just becomes something else. And so, what was your first job here back when you got here in the mid nineties? Uh, I was a junior art director, so I was doing a lot of of print, a lot of print ads. And what does that mean? Like, are you basically just like sketching out like what the what the ad is going to look like in a magazine? Is that sure? Yeah. And then you create a comp on your computer and then you show it to the client and if the client likes it then um you go shoot the photograph that that you featured in the ad and bring it to life and uh back then were most of the was most of the work you were doing already on computers or was it some by hand still or um yeah some was by hand at the very beginning i remember i remember when we got the internet here which was kind of funny and they didn't let people in the creative department have the internet because they thought we would just screw off all day <laughs> and then eventually they, they they let us they let us online. And so then from uh, that first job as assistant art director, what was next? Uh, then I became like a you know full fledged art director, creative director, ECD. What's ECD? Executive creative director. Okay. And then now I'm the chief creative officer. That's pretty steep rise there. Well. You just have to outlast everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. All right. Well, so the, the long game. <laughs> you, well, I mean, did you think that this was something that being a, a a leader like this? I mean, I always wonder when it comes to creative people like you, if, um, well, I guess there are two questions. One is, 
you know, you're obviously you get out of bed in the morning because you like the creative thing. And I guess the first question is, how much do you still get to do? How much creative work do you still get to do now that you're like a leader? I'm a really hands-on leader, so probably much to everyone's dismay. <laughs> I'm I'm very involved. And then on the things where, you know, I'm not like the day-to-day person, I, I try to keep pet projects off to the side that I can actually be the day-to-day person so that I, I have something that keeps me inspired and keeps me close to the creative. And so, but back, like, you know, if you could go back in time, I mean, you I love your story about how you basically ripped out the yellow pages and you did all these things that sound sort of accidental, but they're really not. But did you envision yourself being in this position of being a you know very senior leader partner at one of the biggest firms? Or did you see that as a path for you all along? I never really thought that way. I mean, I think I am that kind of person. I mean, I was president of my student body. I was captain of the cheerleading squad. Like, I think that's just kind of my makeup as a person but i was never like how do i get to cco i don't i I don't know i didn't really think like that okay can i ask you a naive like complete idiotic question that only somebody who doesn't understand advertising would ask and i'm sure you get asked this all the time so effectively as chief creative officer are you basically don draper yes okay good that makes it easy all right yes donna draper donna draper (laughs) and how um i mean look that's an interesting conversation we could talk about sort of the that era of the industry and obviously there were next to no women in it and did that change in the 70s 80s 90s and what what is the right relative balance now between men and women in positions like yours in this industry is it still heavily dominated by men definitely i mean there's a whole um conference called the three percent conference and uh, it was started by this woman kat gordon because she looked at the industry and said only three percent of the creative directors in the industry are are women and largely because of her, that's changed quite a bit. I don't know what the stat is now, but I think it's more like 11 or 16 percent. So we're still, you know, it's not even by any means, but it's definitely it's definitely changing. I think like if I think back to like when I was growing up here as a creative person, I remember when I got pregnant, I left to go on maternity leave. And I can remember thinking, I'm totally screwed. I'm going to be out for six months. And all these people are going to, all these guys are going to leapfrog me while I'm out. And that's exactly what happened. You know, people got promoted and, and, and moved up as, you know, when I was out. And then, you know, I had another kid. So I was out again for another six months. And the same thing happened. So, but the reality is, we were talking about the long game earlier. I ended up playing the long game and 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 kind of, just sticking with it and working really hard and and being hungry and ended up, you know, moving all the way up to the top. But if I really think about it, having a kid was the best thing that ever happened in my career. I think a lot of people like stress out about that, like thinking that, okay, if I do that, including me, (laughs) and then you're out, people are going to, you know, pass me over. But in reality, when I really came back from having my, my second kid, I was so much better as a leader and as a creative because I, and I didn't realize this before, but how much time is wasted. And when I got back, I was just so much more efficient because, you know, if people were wasting my time, it meant that they were taking time away from me being with my kids and I wasn't going to have that anymore. So I was just much more decisive, trust in my gut much more in a way that I never, that I never did before. That's fast. I don't think I've ever heard that before. So that's important. I mean, I think that I'm not saying that it's a good thing that you got left behind twice when you went out on maternity leave, but maybe there was an element of it being not the worst thing. Is it kind of that what you were saying? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I mean, I think in the end, it kind of fueled me to just be a better creative, to be more decisive, to be ultimately just more confident. So tell me a little bit about the process of, um, you know, how the whole thing works from Well, let's start with this. So in general, when you're looking at new business, is it generally you guys being pitched by a client or are you guys pitching to the client on average? We're pitching to the client. You are? Yeah. And who approaches whom in that relationship? So do you decide like, this is a company that I want to work with and, or do they put out a call for proposals and you guys? um... It happens all different ways. I mean, a lot of times, sure, they uh, the pitch will come through a consultant. So it'll be a, you know, cattle call for agencies, you know, maybe they'll start with 
eight or ten agencies and they'll narrow it to five and then three will go into the final and you'll do your big pitch and then they'll they'll choose. For us here, we get a lot of clients that we've worked with in the past that have kind of moved up the ranks and, and gone on to be CMOs at other companies and they just enjoyed the experience before and, and they'll come back. We've had a lot of that lately. There's a guy that, that used to, to work internally here, uh, Steve Simpson, who just joined PayPal. And he hadn't been on the client side before, but he was like, okay, who do I trust to really make me look good as a, as a, uh, as a CMO and who will you know, do really creative work that works? And so that business has just come here. So do a lot of that. Uh, and then just we all like, you know, have friends and, and personal connections. Sometimes we'll, you know, I'll write to people all the time. I wrote to the guy that started Peloton and said, hey, you know what? I, I have I have your bike. I love it. If you guys ever need any advertising, I'd love to I'd love to do it. He didn't he didn't write me back. But. He didn't write you back? <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a lot of that, too. <laughs> probably, but, probably a lot of people write that guy. <laughs> but has anyone um, has anyone respond like any of those like kind of one off emails you send to people? Has that ever ended up in, in actual business? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I think a lot of times something that that happened not that long ago uh there was a a woman that i i knew that was in between jobs and she just i had coffee with her just to you know kick ideas around and and we were talking about her future and her career and then she ultimately landed um at a company called credit karma and when she did as the the head of their marketing department she called me and she was like here i want to give you this thanks that's amazing yeah pretty cool so, and when you're looking at, at a potential client, um, I imagine that a lot goes into the kind of process and decision making, but it feels to me like a, the two main things are sort of what are they doing? What are they selling? What story am I going to tell? And also, what are they like as people? Is that, are those the two major things that you're thinking about when thinking about working with people? Is it, is it, a, do I believe in what they're doing and can I get excited and can I tell the story and do I like them? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Can we, I mean, usually it's like, are they nice people? Are we going to make any money? Can we creatively do something that's awesome? Have you ever worked on something you didn't believe in or felt after the fact felt like, gosh, I really wish I hadn't done that? Sure. Yeah. 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 It's an awful feeling. We try not to do that anymore. <laughs> and is that just about like getting something that's like missing? Like, I'm sure there are a ton of people out there who did beautiful work on tobacco, right? On cigarettes. Sure. Who probably now feel pretty lousy about that. Yeah. But that's where it's like the creative overlaps with the sort of mission i guess is well i think like for this place and granted we are you know a creative shop um so it works you know differently i guess at at all different places but the very best work that we do always comes out of a product or a client uh, or a company that we really believe in so if people are excited about the company or the product then we're going to do an amazing work for it because everybody's just going to put everything into it the times when we've taken something on where we're like, ah, should we take this? I don't know. It just, you can see it in the work. It doesn't turn out as well. And which do you weigh? I mean, this is a dumb question, but which do you weigh more? Is it the actual product or the people? Or is it basically the same? They're both important. Uh, they're both important. I mean, I think, I think you, in general, you want to work with really nice people, but you want to enjoy the, you know, the, the product that you're, they're working on. You want to believe in it. You want, uh, it to be interesting to to other people. You want to work on that kind of stuff. Pop culture is like a huge, a huge thing for us too. Like we always try to tap into pop culture and and think about like what are people like what are the trends now? Like what are people drinking or wearing or doing? You know, we want to be a part of that because that's going to be on the forefront of like what's the most interesting right now. So, how much research are you guys doing on that? Your in house here. I mean, we definitely have a whole team of, of strategists that, that help with that kind of stuff. But I'd say in general, it's really just look inside our own walls at the people here and like, what are they wearing? What are they using? What are they biking on? You know, like, it's just what people are interested in more than any like research. But there's probably no better way to actually know it, right? That if you're actually using it, it's important to you in your life. I mean, that story about Peloton is a good one. I'm sure that's, like you said, there are probably a lot of people who have had that experience where they're like, this is amazing. I want to be involved with this company in some way. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So how much of what you do at its core is storytelling? Is it? Everything. Storytelling is everything. And how much of the story do you know before you start? Like if you, let's just pre- 
I hate to keep using Peloton as an example, but like when you were thinking about them. <laughs> Since like, they completely ignored me. <laughs> well, it's, it'll be fun because you know what? They can listen to this and be like, we were idiots not to use you guys. So, but do you have a story in your head? Like when you wrote that note, did you know how you would think about telling the story? Or do you have a good idea? Well, it's when when we take on, or I don't know, when I take on a new client, I try to unlearn everything that I know and go in fresh and really come at it the way a consumer would that knows nothing about it. Okay, you got to go deep on that. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, if Peloton is the example, I would say I'm super passionate about that. I love that product. I know it's like beautiful and well-made. And so there's an energy that I'll put into it that I might not put into a backroom server somewhere. But when I'm really thinking about a, you know, a new client or a new campaign, I try to table that and really come at it from, um, like I said, the perspective of someone who's never heard of it before. Like what would make them excited about it or interested in learning more about it? And do you think of it like even just as I have 30 seconds to capture this person's imagination or is it different than that? No, I think a lot about 30 seconds is so fast. It's hard to tell a story in 30 seconds. So we do a lot of, you know, storyboarding and thinking about the story arc. But it's different from, you know, we work in so many different mediums and storytelling changes, whether you're on, you know, if you're on Instagram or Instagram stories, that's very different than being on the Super Bowl. So I don't know, it's fun to tell stories on different platforms because they're also different. And when you work with a client, you'll do, depending on how big the job is, but you theoretically touch on each one of those different media, right? You'd touch on potentially print or television, online, all social media, all, all the way from beginning to end. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think the most important thing is um, making sure that regardless of the platform, you're really connecting with the audience. We talk a lot about mass intimacy around here. It's kind of this philosophy inside these walls. And it's having the ability to talk to, you know, millions of people, but making that experience feel very personal. And I think that's more important than ever now that we're, you know, all on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok, <laughs> in addition to just, you know, coming home at night and watching a show on our laptop or our TV. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you make people, how do you make someone feel like you're talking to them and not to the world? I think like, you really have to tap into a cultural insight. So something that, a truth. And if you do that, if you, if you tap into something that is, you know, is true, then it, it's immediately relevant to people. We did a, a campaign um, for Pepsi for the Super Bowl last year. And the whole idea was around, is Pepsi okay? And I remember when we, presented it it was super provocative to them they're like wait we can't do that that's like saying we're second to coke but it's real like that happens you get on a plane and you order a coke and the flight attendant says is pepsi okay and it immediately you've been there so it yeah. resonates with yeah. you you know and you feel something uh, so those kinds of things, I think, are, are really important for storytelling and ideas, because if you're tapping into a truth, then immediately people are, it's going to be more emotional. So let's talk a little bit about markets, targeting specifically, because I'm learning all this stuff, you know, for the first time in my life. And I guess one thing that people say is, you know, it's hard to tell a story to everybody. Like the same story is not going to necessarily resonate with the whole world. So did, when you start this process... That one's good because that one, almost everybody in the world has had that experience right. of, at ordering a Coke and saying, is Pepsi okay? Right. But that's unusual. So how much do you think about who am I, who am I actually trying to tell this story to? Yeah, we do a lot of research on, on that kind of stuff. We have a monthly uh, research tool called Omnibus, and we put, I think it goes out to like 400 Gen Pop people. And... Uh, we can kind of test out ideas like we it's like our own little internal focus group system and uh yeah if we have an idea about something like it's pepsi okay hey have you ever have you ever been in this situation and if a lot of people are like oh yeah i've been there then you know that that's like a rich rich area to to play around 
So we use that kind of, of testing a lot just internally. It's not really a, a client thing, but it's something that we use to to make sure that we're, you know, on the pulse. But do you actually think uh, I'm going to be, um, we're going to have to tell this story differently to say a group of moms as opposed to like a group of teenage. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So we do a lot of, of, you know, research around an audience for, for everything. <laughs> we try to be as narrow as we possibly can, especially if, if there's a specific, you know, you can get really targeted with, you know, what platform you're using. The people on TikTok aren't the same as the people who are watching television at night. And has that been a big development, a trend, a new trend? And do you think in the industry is that you get you're getting more targeted now because technology allows you to be so? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. For sure. And it feels to me like that's a different way of thinking, right? Trying to tell a story that's going to appeal to everybody versus trying to tell a story that's going to appeal to a very small segment of a market. Those are two different things. Yeah. Very, very different. Um, I'm trying to think of a good. A good example of something. Oh, uh, here's one. Cheetos is a good example. Cheetos, the audience that really is like into to Cheetos, they also tend to post, we saw this like in social, like what they see in their Cheetos. So Abraham Lincoln, the Eiffel Tower, the Loch Ness Monster. Really? Right. So one of our strategists is like, this is a real thing. This is what people are doing. And we were like, okay, well, let's build a whole campaign around that. Young people obviously like this idea. Let's build a museum, a Cheetos museum, dedicated to the things that people see in their Cheetos. Took off like a wildfire, like crazy. People went nuts. But again, it's because they connected with it. It like resonated with them because it's something that's truthful and real and that people are already doing themselves. And how did you discover that? What did... did Somebody like somebody here in the office say, you know, people are posting all these like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A strategist yeah. said, look at this. Look at Instagram. People are doing this already. Creatively, could we could we do something like that? It feels like it's a goldmine of potential information out there when you find these trends of yeah. organic popping up, like somebody posting an image of their Cheeto. Yeah, because then you're riding the wave of pop culture. There's already an audience built around it. There are already people liking it and doing it and they want to be a part of it. That's interesting. So do you guys still use traditional, you mentioned before focus groups, do you guys still use focus groups to test ideas and stories? Yeah, I mean, it varies from client to client. I mean, a lot of the um, package good clients still do like animatics and and storyboards that are, you know, very detailed and, and, you know, want to match shot for shot. That's done a lot for, yeah, like package goods. I feel like they do that the most. Um, There are other clients that we have that just do more qualitative research so just put ideas in front of people and just generally how are you feeling about this idea just kind of troubleshoot and make sure we're not totally screwing up so they're Um, basically double checking to make sure that what you the idea that you've pitched to them is something that's actually going to resonate with their customers exactly exactly so it is interesting that you're selling your work twice right you're selling it to the client and also to the consumer in some ways. Exactly. But I think the funny thing is now with social media, it's like you have a live focus group all the time. Right. As soon as you release anything, people are online. People are on Twitter, like telling you exactly what they think about it, good or bad. Um, and who pays more attention to that, you or the client? Well, I think we all do. You all do. Yeah. Yeah. And it does drive behavior. I mean, you guys really do pay attention to it. Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, enough to kill a campaign if you if it's that bad, like if the reaction was that bad? Um. Okay, is there anything we could do to make it better? Like, what could we change about it? Should we reshoot the ending? Should we, how would we do it better next time? That's interesting. All right, so let's talk a little bit about trends in the industry, because we mentioned already online, and that's relatively new. I mean, at least it wasn't around when you, you didn't even have the internet when you started here in 1996. So so tell me a little bit more about how that came to be a big part of your business and, and actually how big of a part of your business is it today oh we do a ton we do a ton of stuff on on social gosh i'd probably say i don't even know now probably like 75 percent of the stuff that we do as an agency is like more digitally driven 75 percent of content yeah and that's 
compared to 2000, that's like, I mean, there was almost none, I imagine, back then. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's just, people are always surprised when, when we talk about that because we kind of have a reputation. We built this place on doing like, you know, big, amazing television campaigns. Right. But um, I don't know. The tables have kind of turned. Well, so, but I, we talked about a little bit how one of the advantages and the reasons that people like it is because you can target and you can test and you can see results relatively quickly. Are there other things that sort of lead people? I mean, is that really the basic gist of why people like doing it and it works and it's cheap? Yeah, I think so. And I think it kind of gives you the opportunity to really be a part of what's happening right now. So you can, something can happen tonight and we can, as a brand, you can respond to it almost immediately, especially here because we have, you know, a, a photo studio, we have a whole edit bay, we have a sound booth like this one. Like we can pretty easily shoot or cut something together or create a piece of music and post it, you know, really quickly. So it's kind of neat that you can you re- react to exactly what's happening into the world right now. So the trend obviously was non to now a lot, but it's hard not to notice like as a person living in San Francisco that a lot of the newer companies, big companies are, are sort of getting back into traditional media. I mean, you're seeing companies, startups even like advertising on TV or on billboards or in print. Is that, do you see that trend sort of coming back a little bit that people are starting to spend more, allocate a little bit more towards these traditional media? I think it's changing. I feel like all the swim lanes are blurring so kind of the line between advertising and entertainment is absolutely blurred if i think back to like two years ago on the super bowl we did a campaign um with doritos and mountain dew called fire and ice and it was like a a rap battle between these two brands it was super entertaining and i remember reading like in social like on twitter like is this advertising like do they really you know or is it just like a music video. So I think the lines are, are blurring. And, and the funny thing is, especially, you know, young people aren't that stoked about being advertised to, but they like brands and they like interacting with brands. So I think the whole approach is changing. That's actually pretty important. So what you just said, that young people like brands. They don't like being advertised to, but they like brands. So I'll ask you the question that like I would, you probably get asked all the time. If I'm an executive at Frito-Lay or Pepsi, did that add up? converting sales like did actually did it work at what it's supposed to do or was it really just a brand building exercise no it really worked it did. Um, in, in that case both of the products were relatively new and so they were both very successful and i attribute that to kind of just tapping into something in pop culture that that people wanted to be a, a part of you know they wanted to to go to snapchat and battle it out with their friend um, they wanted to be a part of this kind of funny back and forth between Morgan Freeman and Peter Dinklage. Like it, it was just a, it was a fun thing to, to be a part of and not just, it's not a passive experience anymore. It's a more interactive experience. So I'm sitting here across from you and I can see the look on your face that this is exciting to you. Like you enjoy this. I do. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes when it, well, I like anything that's new. That's interesting. Because sometimes when I'm it, all about first. Like it, I want to do something that hasn't been done before. I just did this. Um, a strategist came to me and said, "Hey, you know, you're you know, you advocate a lot for women. Um, I just saw this stat, and I thought you might be interested in it. Only, I think it's 11 percent of the stories in the most popular U.S. history books are about women. So only 11 percent." Is there anything you could do to fix it? And I'm like, okay, this is right down my alley. <laughs> what can we do to fix it? So we have an innovation lab here at the agency. So I go up to the innovation lab and said, would it be possible to create an augmented reality experience, like an app, so that we could, if you held your phone over a picture in this history book, could we bring to life a story about a woman who did something equally significant at that exact same time that Lincoln did or Washington did, you know, or all the other guys that are featured in a lot of the books that our kids are reading. And they were like, that's super duper simple, like the most basic augmented reality experience, a hundred percent. So we ended up making it. And uh, for me, like doing things like that, where you're, Doing something that's never been done before is there's no rush like that. 
It's funny because like in my world, a lot of people whine and cry about how medicine is changing. Everyone wants medicine to be the way it used to be. But you embrace, you want, you love the new stuff. Like this is cool for you. Like you're really, you're as excited about this like new adventure that you haven't even heard of yet as you are about doing the stuff you've been doing forever. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Breaking new ground is fun. Like who wants to do stuff everybody else has done before? So what's coming? You mentioned augmented reality. I don't know. I have no idea. But like, what are the, what are the media that you're excited about? Kind of, what do you think the next kind of targeted Instagram, Facebook ad type thing is that's coming for you guys? Well, I was just the the president of the film jury for the Cannes Advertising Festival in um, in France. And one of the, the categories that we were judging was uh, VR, virtual reality. And the stories that were being told in VR were not very good. So I'm instantly like, okay, <laughs> we can do this. Like, <laughs> that seems like an area where we could potentially tell stories in a way that they're not yet being told. In advertising or for entertainment or, or is it just uh, both? Both, both. Uh, also, like we've been playing around a lot with uh, deep fake, which traditionally has been used for, you know, really bad things. But we've kind of been flipping it and trying to use deep fake for good. We just did a project with the Dali Museum in Florida and uh, we brought Dali back to life using deep fake. And it's really neat. If you go into the museum, he's he's always holding that day's newspaper, reading it, and then he puts it down. And, and, you know, the experience is really fun. And you can take a selfie with him. And I don't know, using technology in a way that it hasn't been used before is, is really fascinating to me. Well, and you're in the right place to do it, right? I mean, you're seeing all these. And in fact, probably some of these companies are your clients, right? In some ways, like you're yeah. learning about some of this stuff. I think one of the coolest things about living in San Francisco is just our proximity to Silicon Valley, because we get that first wave of technology. So we kind of are introduced to it maybe a little before other people. Um, so I always try to jump on that as soon as we can. So I want to um, ask you a question. Now you get get to give advice to to me, but forget me, just say in general to young companies who are trying to think about getting started and telling their story. What, what are the things you think about sort of if you were to go on the client side or get in the turn your head around and think about this from the perspective of a, of a young company? What are the kinds of things that you you'd tell them? Um, I would say be brave. Do things that haven't been done before. I feel like there's been, there's a lot of talk about uh, data-driven advertising. And I think data is great for, as a guide to kind of help you learn about things that have already been done or to optimize something that you've created, but you're not breaking new ground with that, that kind of data. So create things you're proud of that people want to talk about, that people want to be a part of, that people are going to tell their friends about and tell their parents about. Um, that's the kind of stuff that, that will make you famous. That's the kind of stuff that'll get you promoted. That's the kind of stuff that customers consumers want to be a part of i remember palmer um i don't know 15 something 15 something years ago was in new york city and called me from waiting in line at the apple store and she was like we should be buying stock in apple <laughs> and it was literally just because she's like waiting in line to get into the store and she's like there's no way in the world this isn't going to be and did, it was, you, did you do it we bought a little bit but not not enough to make a difference <laughs> but that is they clearly tapped into something right that was um, a movement right and it's interesting, you know, at the time she identified that just by how many people were waiting in line. I mean, we do that all the time with like restaurants or movies or things like you sort of think like, well, if it's hard to get in, it must be good. But I think well, it's funny. I like always get excited about working on things that are a part of my life. So my daughter, Vivian, she doesn't eat any meat. So I'm always like, I want to work on Beyond Meat. I want to work on Impossible Burger. Like I want to I don't know. It's fun for me to work on things that are a part of my life already. Uh -huh. uh, absolutely. We, it's funny because we've been having a conversation at Keto about this um, plant-based movement, which at its core seems like it's counter, runs counter to what we do with this you know, ketogenic diet because that sort of has this meat thing. But it turns out that there's this intersection where people are doing plant-based or vegan keto. And hmm. it's like gone insane on uh, social media over the past couple of weeks because this one plant-based cardiology 
doctor in Philadelphia like has been posting about it on Instagram. She has a huge following and she's like, it's unbelievable how much it, it just came out of nowhere. Yeah. That's, oh, wow. That's crazy. It is crazy. The, uh, the impossible burger beyond meat story is really interesting. That one is also like religious. I mean, anything in diet or nutrition becomes religious, but that one you can find people on both sides of that argument who or as passionate as you can get. I mean, it's amazing how much people, energy people could have about hating an impossible burger. To me, it seems completely benign. Like, I don't understand why you would ever hate it, but people actually really do hate it. To me, the thing that's fascinating is that it's just, it's changing lives. Like, now that there's an impossible Whopper, that's crazy. That And it's giving people who traditionally have eaten really poorly, like, an opportunity to to change that, like, I, they probably wouldn't have seeked it out, but at the same place where they're eating something bad, they now, even maybe accidentally, are eating something good. It's uh, there's something like just really, really cool about that. It is cool, and what's really cool is that you know, so Ruthie, my younger daughter, is also vegetarian, and she actually had her first hamburger a couple of weeks ago. She just decided out of the blue, she was like, "I want to actually have a hamburger." Did she like it? I think she liked it, but I think she felt guilty. She's yeah, an ethical yeah. vegetarian. She does. She's an animal lover, and. But the Impossible Burger has been a revelation for her because part of eating is a shared experience. And so it's, we're making, multi, I'm sure you guys do this too at home, but we're making multiple meals. Like we're, you know, when we have burgers, when we have them, we make her something else. But now we can all eat, like we'll buy Beyond Burgers and she eats yeah. those and, we, and we're all having the same experience. Yeah, exactly. We do that too. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, all right. You told me you were going to tell me something that I couldn't talk about. Well... A team came in and, and showed me this idea last night that I thought was was really cool. And it's kind of relevant to you because it um, is a, a medical idea. One Medical is one of our clients. And um, there's a stat, one in five people suffer from um, mental health issues. One in five Americans. It's wild. And people don't talk about it because uh, they're embarrassed or they don't want to anyone to think they're they're lesser or weak or whatever it is so a lot of these people end up posting on reddit probably because it's anonymous right and if you go and 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 look there's just like these heart-wrenching posts from people who can finally express themselves without you know anyone passing judgment so um the creative team that works on one medical took they, they printed out all these quotes and they put them all out on a table and one medical had they had this relationship with iHeartRadio and also had a relationship with this guy, Pooh Bear, who is a songwriter for Justin Bieber and works with him and produces for him quite a bit. And uh, they put all of these quotes out on a table and invited Pooh Bear into the room and said, could you create a song out of out of all these quotes? And so he selected like 15 or 20 of these and then created this amazing song out of these like, heartfelt quotes that people were, were posting on Reddit. Anyway, the idea is that hopefully we can put this out into the world and people will realize that they're not alone, that there are other people who feel the same way. And the, the song itself is really uplifting, despite the, the content being kind of heartfelt. So anyway, hopefully it'll make a lot of people feel better. So is Justin Bieber going to record it? I don't know. You we'll don't see. Know. We'll see. Time will tell. Cool. So anything else that we are missing in this brief but lovely conversation? <laughs> Uh, I don't think so. I feel like we've covered a ton of ground. Wait, I got one more question for you. Okay. Since we talked about famous people, I'm curious about what you think about the role of influencers. It feels like that's that's been something relative, relatively new in the past, you know, whatever, five, ten years. And get and it seems like it's more and more important. What's your what's your take on that? It's interesting because they're, you know, our our kids like follow a lot of these influencers. They don't even realize that they're being paid to you know, wear or sing or <laughs> use whatever product it is by the companies themselves. So it's a little, I don't know, I, part of me wishes that it was all a little more transparent. You think it's manipulative? 
Sometimes I do. I, I personally like it when the influencer is like transparent about the fact that they're being paid or that, you know, I, I like it the most when the like someone like Katy Perry is like, hey, I like Flamin' Hot Cheetos. They're not paying me. Right. I just like this. But how can you tell the difference? That's influential. I guess that's not really an influencer, but I... But how would you tell that that's organic? How would you know that, though? If you're a consumer, I mean, you might know, but like, how would I know if Katy Perry is getting paid by Frito-Lay? Yeah, you probably wouldn't. I don't know. I I think I... I struggle with the the influencer thing a little bit. What about these podcast ads? Like you listen to a pod, like you'll listen to Malcolm Gladwell and he'll talk about how he loves to wear I don't want to mention a brand, but he'll he'll wear a certain shoe or something. And right. Obviously he's getting paid. That's the business of podcasting, is that they're yeah. getting paid by advertisers. But he also at least he convinced me that he actually wears the shoe. Like is it or is that just nonsense? I, am I just being completely lied to? <laughs> No, I don't, probably not. I mean, I, I mean, I would hope you wouldn't say that he wears these shoes and loves them if he doesn't. Uh, but I, you know, I would hope that he would only say that if he was, you know, honestly did believe in the in the product. And do you think that they are? So set aside your ethical qualms. Do you think they actually? <laughs> do you think they work? They, do you think they convert? Like, do they actually? Yeah, you know? I mean, gosh, look at the Kardashians. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's working. I mean, they're charging some astronomical amount of money per tweet, right? I mean, they yeah, can, yeah, it's crazy. Well, they have such a following, you know. Um, but how different is that than product placements? Like, how different is that than putting a, a can of Pepsi in a movie, like in a paid way? Yeah, I guess I I feel like in a movie, I I'm not. It's not as manipulative. It's like it's a prop, and if I see it and I liked the movie, and then I end up feeling good about you know that bottle of water because it was on the table in a scene that with two actors that i really like so be it when an influencer is being paid to hawk something i don't know it's a little it's a little more manipulative all right i got it all right well listen you've been amazing to do the generous and amazing to do this with me thank you for for having me it's been really fun i can't wait to hear it in its entirety I wonder if my Southern accent is coming through. It will, definitely. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, Ethan. Margaret Johnson is a force. She's a quiet force, but a dominant one. She has her finger on the pulse of the world and is truly a leader in advertising. There were many things that stood out from our conversation, but the one that resonated most strongly with me was Margaret's focus on doing what you know, what you love, what you use in your everyday life. It's hard to know when work becomes a career, a calling. But for Margaret, there is no doubt. She takes what she knows as a busy woman, a mother, an executive, and brings that to the work she does in getting to know the companies she represents and in telling their stories. She values people over product, and she values mission over all else. She knows that the stories she tells will be that much better when she believes in what she's saying, when she believes in the people and the products that they are making. This is Best Known Method.